Thank you. And thanks to Mary Lou Van Airsdale, my mother-in-law, who is joining with us today and adding her musical talents. It's um, great to have you. Thanks for doing that. The most uh, influential theologian of the 20th century, the most influential theologian of the 20th century, may be a man you've never heard of. Maybe some of you have. But. Karl Barth was born in Switzerland, and he came of age at a time when Europe, the theology in Europe, was heading fast and furious towards liberalism. Now, liberalism doesn't mean what it means in American political culture. Liberalism in theology means the lack of taking the Bible at its word. The disbelief in the miraculous, the idea that human achievement or uh, accomplishment is really the goal of theology and of church. Now, in a weird sort of, funny sort of way, the liberalism of the 20th century led nations to seek a utopia, a perfection. Well, I won't say this. I'm not going to say that, that might be saying too much. The liberalism of the 21st century, of the 20th century, maybe it didn't lead the charge toward nationalism, what would become Nazism and, and fascism. Maybe it didn't lead the charge, but it didn't stand in its way. It fit hand in glove together. Which is why liberal universities and seminaries and churches, did you know in the 30s they had to pledge an oath to the Fuhrer in Germany? And there, were, there was a sect, a group of churches and seminaries that refused to. They were called the Confessing Church. Uh, you might have heard of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was famous among that ilk. Well, Karl Barth um, was very, very influential uh, on this uh, as well. And of course, they got expelled from Germany and the universities got defunded and Barth went back to Switzerland where he was from anyways. But from there, he led the charge against theological liberalism. And so, if you are a evangelical or a Christian conservative, however you define that today in America, you have much to be thankful for to Karl Barth. God used him to bring you where you are today, whether you know it or not. Barth only made one trip to the United States. This is in 1962. Um, and it was on a tour of colleges uh, and churches that he was going through. He was at the University of Chicago. And he was holding a Q&A after one of his lectures. And the last person to ask a question stood up and said, Dr. Bart, can you summarize your life's work in a sentence or two? And Bart, with a twinkle in his eye and without much hesitation said, indeed I can. It was a, I, it's from a song that I learned at my grandmother's knee. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. The audience was stunned and then erupted into applause. 
such a simple truth. Those of us who have followed Jesus, who have dug into the scriptures much at all, we can probably appreciate the truth of this learned man. Bart, he had written millions upon millions of words, tens of thousands of pages. If you see his church dogmatics, is what it's called, uh, multi-volumes, it takes up like this much space on somebody's bookshelf. The guy had debated the best of the best. He had pastored for years and years. He had trained theologians, and he had worked through some of the most difficult theological questions humanity had wrestled with to the time. Up to that time. And yet here he was. The beauty of it all was that experience distilled into that one line. Because yes, we all know it, don't we? We know it intuitively in our hearts that the Christian faith, it is deep enough for a theologian to swim in it forever and ever and ever. But it is also, thanks be to God, simple enough for the three-year-old who can sing a song to understand. Jesus loves me. Hallelujah. When we come to the book of Romans, some of us, maybe we feel like we are unqualified because it's thick, it's dense, it's uh, heady, if you know what I mean by that. We have to think, we have to work, and I won't apologize for that because we are commanded by God to love him with all of our what? Hearts, mind, right? And strength. And so we're going to do that. So get ready. Maybe you'll want your pencil or your pen to be handy. We're going to do that. But at the same time, we are not going to be intimidated. If we get to things where maybe you're going to feel like you're, you're at the YMCA after making a New Year's resolution, you know, and, and you, do, you, you, you say, I'm going to do 10 reps on that thing, and you get one and a half, and it falls. Uh, and you drop the thing. <laughs> okay, that's my story anyway. Uh, you might feel like that with Romans. You might get winded. I might feel overwhelmed. I might get winded. I don't have all of the answers that Romans is going to uh, uh, bring up. Okay? However, 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 it is the Word of God. It is the Word of God. And there is tremendous profit in studying it and in working hard. There's tremendous profit in pumping that iron. Okay? One more remark before we get into the scriptures. Maybe I have to spend a second to say, why should we work? Why should we dive into this work and try so hard? Why should we think so hard? We don't want to think so hard, man. I get home from work at the end of the day. I don't want to think hard. I want to zone out, right? You ever, some of you kind of shake your heads up and down. Have you ever been there? You ever feel that way? Yes, okay. And so why? Why work at it? Well, couple reasons. First of all, the author. The author is Paul the Apostle. You know what an apostle is? An apostle is one of the people who saw the risen Christ, walked with Jesus, heard from Jesus in his resurrected form. All of the New Testament is written by apostles. That's why, let me go down just a quick rabbit trail. That's why Christians don't accept the so-called Gnostic Gospels. You remember way back in the day, Da Vinci Code was all piled the rage and everything. And, and there was uh, this controversy, supposedly, that these Gospels should be held just as, uh, you know, the Gospel of Judas, the Gospel of Thomas, Mary Magdalene, all that. They should be just as on par with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
We don't accept that because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written by God by guys who walked with Jesus or who were hanging out with the guys who walked with Jesus. Those other Gospels were a hundred and some years later at the earliest. And oftentimes those Gospels were written to teach something completely different. They didn't like something that was in one of the four biblical Gospels. You see? So that's why we don't pay too much. We'll read them, sure. There's good stuff in there. Too. It's, it's maybe worthwhile reading them from time to time. But they're not Scripture. They're not inerrant. So that brings me to... So first, we got Paul the Apostle speaking. He was with Jesus after he rose from the dead. So he, we should listen up if we care about Jesus, right? The other portion, as I already alluded to, is this is Scripture. Almost from the very beginning, when the churches received this letter from Paul, they knew this was not merely a man's letter. They copied it, they disseminated it, they spread it all over the Greco-Roman world. They knew that this was Holy Spirit-inspired. This was, this was the actual words of God. So why should we work? Why should we work? One, the guy who's writing it is pretty doggone important. And we should care about what he has to say. And two... The words that he's writing, they're not just his words. They're the words of God himself. So, without further ado, let's go to the word. We're going to start with Romans 1. Based on what I just said, let's rise. Sometimes we do this. Let's stand as a, just a, a sign of, uh, that we are under God's word and we are attentive. We're going to show respect. We're going to listen uh, to God's word as we turn to... Go ahead with the scripture up there. As we turn to Romans 1, verse 1. Paul writes this. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle. I talked about that. Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures concerning his son, who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those who in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's one sentence. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers, asking that somehow by God's will I may now at last succeed in coming to you. It's interesting, Paul has never, never been to Rome when he wrote the letter. Paul didn't start the church in Rome. Some people think that he did, but he didn't. We don't know who started the church in Rome. Paul does make it there eventually, but he hasn't been here at this point. Let's go on, verse 11. For I long to see you. Why? Well, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen me. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. 
I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you, but thus far have been prevented, in order that I may reap some harvest among you as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Gentiles are people who aren't Jewish. Anybody who's not Jewish is a Gentile. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish, so I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. That just means Jesus came to the Jews first. It doesn't mean that the Jews are somehow more saved or more important. Verse 17 For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, he quotes the book of Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. Holy God, grant that we might be counted righteous. May we look upon your righteousness, Lord, and be attracted to that and want that for ourselves for our families, for our town, Lord, yea, for the entire world. Teach us this morning, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please have a seat. I want to begin with the big picture of Romans. You can actually distill it down to a sentence, the point of Romans, the thesis, if you want to go back to high school grammar class. Paul has a thesis sentence. It's there in verse 17. But before we get there, notice that how the Romans is talking about the gospel of God. How many times does Paul use the word gospel or refer to it? He says in verse 1, go ahead and put this back up. He put this back up. The gospel is, gospel just means good news, by the way. It just means message. He's just talking about the message of God, the gospel of God, right? The gospel is, uh, uh, it's news. It's for the sake of the gospel that Paul was saved. Do you see that in verse 1 there? Paul is a servant of Christ. Actually, they should be translated slave. The English translators quit using the word slave, most of them, because of the connotations it has with the antebellum slavery in this country. That's a shame. Because Paul chose that word in the Roman context intentionally. He is claiming no authority or no grandeur of himself. He is a slave. But he's a slave of the king. So that's a big deal. He's a slave of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, set apart for the message Set apart for the message. What is that message? That message is something that has been promised beforehand in the prophets. That's the Old Testament. The Old Testament's a promise, this message. It's about the Son of God, verse 3, who came from the line of David according to the flesh, and then who was raised in power, shown to be the Son of God at the resurrection. Yes, Jesus Christ our Lord. We still don't know what the message is exactly, do we? but it's Jesus Christ. What about Jesus? What is this gospel? Jump to verse 16. 
the gospel is the power, power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Okay? That's, that describes it. doesn't tell us what it is. Verse 17. In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. That's the thesis statement of Romans. In the gospel, in the message, in the news, the righteousness, think back to the kids' message, the righteousness of God has been revealed. The word, this is a huge deal. This is a big deal. The righteousness of God, it's like the pulling back of a curtain. The righteousness of God has been revealed. Now, in fact, it's such a big deal. The word is the same word as apocalypse in the Greek. The apocalypse has occurred with this message. Now, if you're confused, or at least if you're not excited by that, that's because you're not thinking like an ancient Jew. Let's fix that. Think about, Paul was a Jew. So think about, and the church that he's writing to in Rome is at least partially Jewish. In fact, later on in the letter, we're going to get to all these problems that they're having because the Jews and the non-Jews are trying to live together and have this faith together, and it's causing problems. Paul is a Jew. Think about Jewish national history with me. The Jewish people, they came into being when God called Abraham, and he made Abraham a promise. God promised Abraham descendants and land. God promised to bless all the nations through the people of Israel. And then the, throughout the Old Testament, we get that promise reiterated to person after person. And the prophet Jeremiah even gets more specific, saying this from Jeremiah 23. He says, Behold, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David, this means Israel, a righteous branch. And he, that branch, shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness, there's that word again, in the land. In his days Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called, look at that, the Lord is our righteousness. That's the promise. Now, here's the problem if you are an ancient Jew. If God is good, he's going to keep that promise, right? It seemed God had done that in the story of of Joseph. It seemed he had done that. He had rescued Jacob and his sons from Israel, and he brought them into Egypt at the time of the famine, and he saved them. And then what happens is the people settle there and they start to multiply and they start to multiply. But then what? A new king comes into power in Egypt and he hates the Jews. He gets jealous. And so he starts to persecute them, puts them into slavery and on and on and on and on and on. Well, then comes Moses and God saves these people again, right? And he rescues them and he sends them into freedom. But freedom where? In the wilderness, in the desert, right? Right? And then the grumbling begins. Right? The grumbling begins and the faithlessness of the people. When they're in the desert, God gives Moses the law. This is how you're supposed to live. Tell the people, Moses, this is how I want you to live so that you're going to be different from all the other nations because you're going to look like me. That was the reason they were given the law. And in the law, 
there are blessings for obedience and there are curses or consequences for disobedience. And what happens again and again in the history of Israel? They can't keep the law. They don't keep the law. They continue to reject God and turn away from Him. And any thinking Jew at the time, any thinking Jew knew, had this angst, this anxiety within them. Is God going to keep His promise? Is He righteous? But if God's righteous, can He reward a people who are forever faithless to Him? Who are forever in rebellion against Him? We have this similar problem today. Thinking people have the similar problem today. We long in our hearts for there to be a God and for that God to be good. We long for God to be good. That, by the way, don't take that for granted. That came from the Jewish faith. You know, before the Jews, nobody thought that there was, nobody thought that there was even one God, first of all, let alone that that God was good. There were all kinds of gods, and they were not good. Today, continuing paganism all over the place. You don't know if God is good. But the Jews insisted that he was. And I think deep in your heart and in my heart, we long for a God who truly is good, who truly is loving, who truly is merciful, who wants to embrace us and take us in. But we also, we also wonder if we deserve it. We, we doubt that we're good enough for that good God. How do I know if I'm good enough for that good God? Even if I think I'm not that bad. How do I know that I'm good enough for that good God? We long for justice. The kids, you heard them. When there's a bad guy in a movie, you just don't, you don't just want the bad guy to be prevented from being bad. There's something, you want him, you want him to get what's coming to him. Something deep inside wants justice. The Bible says that's all from God. That's because you're an image bearer of God. That's why you feel that way. That's why you long for a God who is good, but you also sense that there needs to be a thing in this world called justice. So which is it? Will God be good to me and accept me? But how can he when I don't accept him, when I turn away from him? I have this problem. Paul used to be a Pharisee, very religious guy, tried to be as good as he can and live that way. And he would have longed for, for the God of Israel to finally come and to break through and to keep his promises, to bless Israel, restore them, make them kings of the world again, right? But he would have known that if God were to do that, many, if not most of his countrymen would be excluded from that nation because they had turned away. They had married outsiders. They had brought foreign gods into their homes. They had all but dismissed or forgotten the God that their ancestors followed through the wilderness. How can God take a people that are no better than the outsiders and bless them and make them the big cheese? How can God do that if he is righteous? How can God do that? This is why the righteousness of God being revealed, that curtain being opened, is such a big deal. 
God was going to keep his promise. And he was also going to be perfectly just. Perfectly fair. No one was going to get away with nothing. The curtain parts. There's a cross. There's a grave. There's a stone. It's rolled away. This is why the beginning of Romans is so excited. Start from the back and work forward. Gospel of God, it's the unveiling. I told you it's apocalypti. It's the unveiling of God's righteousness. Nothing is going to be the same now. God reveals his righteousness. He acts out of his love for the good of the whole world. How does he do it? By taking the bad of the whole world on his shoulders, suffering and dying under its weight. Is God righteous? Yes, is the answer. Yes, yes, and yes again. This is why Paul is so excited to preach the gospel. See, you can't be a Christian without the Old Testament. You can't understand Jesus without the story of the Jews. So if we're going to make sense of the story of the Jews, then that has to be our starting point, and that's where Paul starts. Verse 4 says, That Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power. In power. Some people read that and thinking it was the power of the Holy Spirit that raised God from the dead. But that's not the right reading. Who who raised God from the dead? Think Trinitarian with me. Who Who raised God from the dead? That's what Scripture says. The Father. God the Father. God the Father raised Jesus from the dead. What's it mean that Jesus was raised in power? How did Jesus come on Christmas? How did he come? How did he come? As a baby with how much power? Emptied, right? Emptied himself of all that he had in heaven. But then, on the third day, he was raised with power. And now heaven and earth touch like they never have before. Because this, just, this wasn't just the God, this wasn't God uh, confined in a human body. This was the resurrected Jesus in all of his glory. The Jesus who could come and go as he wanted, appear wherever he wanted, do whatever he wanted, and who would ascend up into the clouds one day. This is way more than a person. It's God in power. And because Jesus has done this and he has conquered death, Now, here's where we get to what Paul's trying to do in Romans. He wants to get to Rome, right? He wants to have a harvest in Rome. What's happened is, think about an egg. Think about an egg with a bird inside, and it's about to hatch. The first thing that happens is, and the beak pops through, right? The beak pops through the shell. That's the resurrection. Just go with me. That's the resurrection, okay? Nothing will ever be the same. That egg will never be the same. So the egg is the world. Pop. The beak comes through. Now, what happens? Spider webs across the shell, right? Crack, 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 crack. As the message, as the good news of the gospel of God goes out from nation to nation, tribe to tribe, every tribe, every tongue, and 
all around the globe is hearing this message and some people, not everybody, some people are responding and they're accepting and they're believing in Jesus and their lives are being changed and they're beginning to look like Jesus, act like Jesus, think like Jesus, smell like Jesus, I don't know, but they're beginning to change, right? And the, the, the communities that they create, these churches are different. Everybody's looking at them like they're weird because they don't live like everybody else and, and their priorities aren't the same as everybody else. And as this starts to happen, man, communities are being changed and nations are being changed and all creation groans as, in, as a woman in childbirth expecting the, 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 the fulfillness of creation to come. The entire egg is cracks all around it. And even now, this is where we are today. It's just pulsating as the cracks grow and as you share your faith, as you share the message of the gospel and as new people surrender their lives to Jesus and their lives are changed and their families are changed, the cracks grow and grow and grow and the Bible promises that one day what's going to happen, the shell's going to be exploded. And we don't even, we can't even imagine what's inside, what that looks like, what's coming. We have no idea what that looks like. But that's our hope. That's our glory. The righteousness of God has been revealed, and that's a hugely powerful thing because God has shown how he can be both perfectly loving and good and perfectly just. How he can accept Israel even when Israel doesn't accept him. How, can he, how he can accept you even when you don't accept him. It's by faith. It's why you're believing in him. It's just a free gift. He just gives you the gift. He just forgives you. But the righteousness of God being revealed, as big a deal as that is, it's just the beak, man. It's just the beak coming through the shell. We have no idea. And that hope, that is the hope that has inspired Christians and continues this day to inspire Christians around the world to endure anything, anything in the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray and let's sing some more, okay? That sounds like a good idea. I don't have anything else to say. So let's just sing. Father, thank you. Father, thank you. Lord, we believe. Help our unbelief. We believe. Help our unbelief, Father. We come to you. And we want to be yours. We want to be your sons. We want to be your daughters. So we come to you in faith. Some of us have a lot of faith. Some of us have a little faith. Maybe some of us have never exercised any faith before, Father. May today be the day that that happened for the first time. May we say, Lord, I believe. Forgive me. Make me your own. Teach me to live for the day when the hope of heaven comes in power and in glory once and for all, fully and finally, right here to earth. In Jesus' name, amen.